All right. Well, um, you guys should all know my name, but let's pretend like maybe you don't. I'm Jason. Um, I helped plant uh, Northbrook as a member, um, partially because um, I just always wanted to know what it was like to be a part of a new church plant, and also just um, the men and the, the women that were going um, were just impactful and influential people to me. Um, James, sorry, we have, we have a discussion over the word impactful and whether or not it's it's a good word to use, and I didn't even think about it. I just used okay, it. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, so yeah, I, I, I arrived here at, at Northbrook, you know, when, when we started, and it's been really awesome to kind of see us grow from like just an idea and an idea of a thing with a lot of people coming from different churches into this, you know, fully fledged um, church. And I think one of the big steps in that uh, is things that we had in mind when we started Northbrook that we then wanted to have executed. And one of them was introducing a teaching element to our Bible studies every week. Uh, it's something that the village had done. It's something that if you were ever a part of BSF that they do, um, depending on you know, the location and whatnot. And I kind of just want to, real quick, I don't want to assume that you know why we're introducing this teaching element. I want to walk us through a few of the reasons why we're adding this element and why we're taking up 30 to 45 minutes every week for some dude to stand in front of you and, and tell you about the book of Matthew. So first, uh, the reason we're introducing this element of the Bible study to this Bible study is first to saturate the people of Northbrook with the Word of God. So we've already got that with the individual prep that we're going to be doing every week through the book of Matthew. We've got that through that discussion that we just ended through the, uh, through the book of Matthew, but now um, in this added element, it's also going to be through the proclamation of God's Word through teachers at Northbrook Church. And the second one um, is we want to raise up a generation of teachers here at Northbrook Church. Um, this is both for those who will be sent out of Northbrook to plant churches, be global missionaries, but that's also for those who are going to stay at Northbrook Church. Those who are going to set their roots in the community of North Fort Worth and are going to teach kids. They're going to teach youth. They're, I mean, it's just everybody who is going to be training younger people in the faith, who just came to faith in Christ and showing them what it's like to, um, to follow Jesus and be among his people um, for those who are going to be ministry leaders and deacons and and you know hopefully you know some of the men who are going to become um, elders in the church and help pastor and shepherd the flock so those three those those two first two reasons are are big ones but then we've got a reason that scripture gives us directly and it's in Romans chapter 12 so if you would go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 12 Romans chapter 12, verse 4. And then once you get there, would somebody go ahead and read it for us? I got you. All right. Four through eight. Oh, I'm in KJV. Let's go to ESV. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them if prophecy 
in proportion to our faith, his service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Thanks, James. I'm going to go ahead and read that one more time as well. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Walk up to the recorder and read it next time. If that's what you were doing. No, I just want us to get like some repetition and reading through scripture, especially this early. Sure. So, I got you. Appreciate it though. Um, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna do that basically every time one person read and then I'll read it again. Um, so yeah, those are the, the three main reasons that um, we're introducing this teaching element to to Bible study. Um, so if you were with us last time, we didn't have it quite yet. Um, and yeah, the first one being. We just want to saturate y'all with the Word of God in every single way we can. The second is um, to raise up teachers at Northbrook. And three, it's uh, to, to encourage the body of Christ to the giftings that, they've, uh, that the Spirit's given us. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk about why the Gospel of Matthew specifically. Um, when I first became a believer, when the Lord saved me at age 13, the very first book... And my very first church went through was the book of Matthew. And it's the very first book that I then went ahead and studied. And that's the story for a lot of people. A lot of people have already gone through the book of Matthew in some kind of way, or have heard some kind of sermon series about it, or at least one of the parts, you know, um, like on uh, like on Good Friday and Easter, probably a series of sermons around the crucifixion or the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. So it's not that the Gospel of Matthew is is super unknown to us in the church. But Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, Matthew was the favorite gospel of the early church. It sounds weird, because now you're talking about the early church playing favorites. But there's a few reasons for it. One of the, one of the reasons why Matthew was the favorite gospel of the early, early church was that the early church utilized the gospel of Matthew as an immersion of sorts. Weave throughout the Gospel of Matthew is the story of God from the very beginning of all things. And this was an opportunity to get the Gentiles that did not grow up with the Jewish customs and the Old Testament teachings to catch up in a way. Get immersed in the God's larger story for his people. So in the early church, one of the things that um, they did was before people got baptized, they went through a um, roughly three-year period called catechesis. And there were a few different source materials that they used, but one of them was the book of Matthew. And it was um, because of Matthew's emphasis on certain things and because of the Jewishness of it that caught up the Gentiles who were coming to faith to the larger story that God had already been laying for generations and generations. And in a particular way, Matthew's focus on the teaching of Jesus is fitting for us in this season of Northbrook Church. As we mature from a newly planted church into a church setting its roots in a community, we have the opportunity to dive into the teachings of Jesus and let them shape and direct us as followers of Jesus. Adorable. 
So, you're welcome. <laughs> so in order to comprehend what Matthew intends for us in this book, let's look at the background of the Gospel of Matthew. So let's talk about the author and the date, the who and the when. So I know this is surprising to you. Um, though all Gospels are technically anonymous, a guy named Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. General consensus is that this Matthew was Matthew the, the Apostle, the former tax collector. And when you hear former tax collector, right now we probably think annoying IRS, I gotta give them a little bit of my money that I get from, from my paychecks. But when they heard tax collector, they heard scum of the earth. When the, when the Jewish people heard tax collector, that's what they have. That's what they heard. And the reason for that was many reasons, but one of the things that happened was tax collectors had a certain amount that they had to take from the people to give to the Roman authorities. But in order to make it worth their while, they would skim a little bit off, off the top. They'd add a little extra. And they would use it for all kinds of nefarious purposes um, in kind of building up their own power and authority in the area. Um, and so when the Jewish people heard that Matthew, the former tax collector, is the one writing this gospel, they were thinking, that guy, the scum of the earth, who then became an apostle of Jesus? It just shows you the nature of, of, of who Jesus brings in to be his disciples. And it shows us now who God redeems and uses to communicate his word to us. As to when the Gospel of Matthew is written, well, there's two main theories. First one is the early date theory, and the second one is the later date theory. Um, as you can tell by the name of them, the early date theory holds that Matthew was written earlier. Sometime in the late 50s to early 60s, and this is held by the church historically. The early church, through the first um, several centuries, believed that the Gospel of Matthew was written pretty early and that it was the first book of the New Testament to be written, or the first gospel at least. Um, then there's the later date theory, and like the name suggests, um, this is the position that the book of Matthew was written around the late 70s to sometime in the 80s. And this is held by much of modern scholarship due to the assumption that Mark is the source material for the gospel of Matthew. And we could go back and forth about which one is right and which one's wrong, um, but just for the sake of the study and the sake of, of hubris, let's go ahead and just take a deep breath. Thank you, Greg. And assume the early date theory. I know, I know, I know. Assume the early date theory. And here are the reasons why I want us to assume this. Number one, it's held by the church historically, and I think we don't hold that into account enough. Um, we have a little bit of uh, what I would say chronological snobbery when it comes to studying the, the, the beginnings of the New Testament. And, you know, because of the things at our disposal, um, we can kind of think, oh, the early church thought that, but they weren't informed enough, right? And the second reason is I want us to just assume it for now um, because of the provision of God and how he's placed it in our scriptures. Any other gospel could have been placed in, at the very beginning, and, in, and the, any other gospel could have been utilized as the favorite gospel of the, the early church. Um, but the gospel of Matthew was utilized. So you're free to disagree. You're free to have a late date theory instead of early date theory. Um, but that's what I'm going to assume as I teach this and as I kind of teach uh, later on as well. So, so now that we know who wrote the gospel of Matthew and 
kind of, sort of, know when it was written, we should look into the genre of Matthew. I want you to go back to your high school English class. If you didn't like your high school English class, I'm so sorry, but we're going back. All right? Genre is a category or a format of a work that informs how it is to be read and how it is to be interpreted. So, for instance, if you're watching the genre of comedy, you probably shouldn't take it too seriously. You should interpret much of it as a joke. On the other hand, if you're reading a genre of tragedy, you probably shouldn't think everything's a joke. You should probably take into account that from the very beginning, in this tragedy, everything's going to go downhill. Nothing is going to get better. And if it does seem to get better, it's always just a false turn before getting worse again. Matthew, on the other hand, it's not a comedy or a tragedy. It's a narrative. And specifically, it's an ancient narrative with series of discourses throughout. And we'll talk about what the word discourses means in just a moment. But narrative is what we know of as story. All right? As kids, we knew narrative as those books that started with once upon a time or in the beginning. Today, those narratives may be engaging movies, riveting books, binge-worthy shows. However, we tend to consume narrative that is fiction. So when we think of fiction, we think of stories, we usually think of fiction. Biblical narrative may have a lot of similarities to those stories that we know in our books and our movies and our sitcoms and our shows, but it's different in a few ways. Biblical narrative may follow the structure and the flow of the stories that we already know, but it was written by Matthew in a very different time to a very different audience, and this is the very important one, as the word of God, it is entirely accurate, true, and perfect. We can't say that about all the other stories that we consume today. So because biblical narrative is similar to the stories we watch and hear day to day, it's helpful for us to compare books like Matthew to them. You're going to hear me utilize some analogies from stories we know today to uh, the book of Matthew, and that's helpful as long as we recognize that the Bible is not completely like these other stories. It is the word of God, God telling us who he is, revealing himself to us, and what he's done and what he's going to do. And like the stories we consume today, the book of Matthew has a main point, a main takeaway for its readers. In Breaking Bad, or if you prefer, Shakespeare's Othello, the main point is that the ends never justify the means, and that evil is always evil. In Star Wars, the main point is that all of creation is corrupted and corruptible, but that there's always hope for redemption. And the main point of the Gospel of Matthew is this. Jesus has established his kingdom and is now expanding this kingdom through his disciples who proclaim his life and teachings. If you write anything down, if you're a writer, write that down. Jesus has established his kingdom and is now expanding this kingdom through his disciples who proclaim his life and teachings. If you didn't get that fast enough, don't worry, I'll come back to it. And so with that main point in Matthew in mind, Let's talk about the flow of this story and all other stories. Well, first, the author is, begins by painting a picture of setting, to use that high school English word again, setting. It introduces us to main characters or main character. Here in the book of Matthew, the first century Israel is the setting, right? Not 21st century America, first century Israel. So knowing that about the setting is going to change how we read and interpret a lot of Matthew. <coughs> Jesus is the main character, and then we have a lot of secondary characters. Specifically, a group of secondary characters that's very important to the book of Matthew, which is the disciples of Jesus. 
Second, the author utilizes rising tension as the story progresses towards its climax. We'll discuss the rising tension of these later in, in these later elements as we go through the book of Matthew. But essentially, it's the idea in narrative that things aren't going exactly as you think from the beginning towards a climax, peak moment of tension, and then resolution. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Now, in terms of the narrative of the book of Matthew, we also have several sections throughout Matthew that are known as discourses. And these five discourses or teachings with an application, if you want to think about discourses in that way, these discourses are monologues of Jesus, meant to be learned and to be memorized. I'm going to say that again. That's just kind of like a, a weird thing to, for us to think about with all the things that we just read and don't have to memorize. Matthew meant for these five discourses to be learned and to be memorized. The Sermon on the Mount. The three other discourses and the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Matthew meant for you to memorize these. Why? Well, because these were the basis for Christian discipleship. The teachings of Jesus are important because they teach us who he is and what he's done. And our signal for these discourses as we're reading through the book of Matthew and going back to the narrative is when Matthew says, when Jesus had finished saying these things. And so here's an example from the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Will somebody read verses 24 through 29? I get it. All righty. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I'll go ahead and read that again. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And skipping down to the part that we're really focusing on here. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. So right there, when Jesus had finished saying those things, that's Matthew's little indication to us that, all right, the discourse is over. We're back into the thrust of the narrative, the story. These are kind of like, I don't want to say asides because they're still like central to the book of Matthew, but it's kind of like the story is going along and Matthew wants us to like stop for a long time on the teaching of Jesus, really slow down in time, and then speed back up through the story. That's something that happens in narrative, is pay attention to how quickly and how slowly time moves. Right? If we're sticking in a scene of exactly what's happening for an entire chapter, pay attention to that. And then, when we talk about the you know um, 12 years of Jesus from birth to when he... Um, you know, when he goes to the temple with his parents, 
pay attention to the fact that 12 years is overlooked really quickly by these gospel writers to just go straight into the next thing. And let's go ahead and zoom out a bit and look at the structure of the book of Matthew, the overall structure. So keeping in mind all of these high school English words, let's look at the setting. Well, the setting and the beginning of the story is the arrival of Jesus on earth, his birth, and the beginning of his ministry. And then, as we had mentioned, the rising tension, this, this device that's used in narrative to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit uneasy about what's going on. It's the opposition to the authority and validity of Jesus throughout all of the book of Matthew that leads up to the plot to kill Jesus. So looking back at Matthew chapter 7 that we were just in, the end of the discourse says this, And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. And it seems a little bit of a tame sort of tension, but look at the words that are used there. First, astonished, right? That should kind of wake you up a little bit. Surprised. They were astonished. They were thrown off. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so basically they're describing Jesus as, whoa, whoa, whoa. This guy is like placing himself above our teachers. He's teaching in such a way that he has more to say than all of the teachers that have been teaching us. And so that's kind of a, a start beginning to this rising tension in the narrative of the book of Matthew. And then, in narrative, the rising tension leads up to a climax, a moment of peak tension, the central message of the book. And we would think that this is when Jesus is crucified. All of this plan to, to kill Jesus, oppose his authority, take him out of the picture because he won't do the way um, the authorities are saying that he should do. It all comes to a climax in his crucifixion. And it seems like the authorities of this world and Satan and the enemies won. But it's a false climax. The real climax is three days later, Jesus resurrecting and defeating death itself. So when the authorities and as you're, let's just pretend like you're reading the story of Jesus for the very first time. You think that the climax is the people of the world have won and this figure Jesus He's done for, right? But then Matthew comes back and he gives you the real climax, the real moment, the, the peak moment of tension that's relieved in the resurrection of Jesus, defeating death itself, death and sin. And then after climax in every narrative, there's resolution. The resolution here is Matthew chapter 28. Jesus commands his disciples to go and to proclaim his teachings, baptizing them and introducing them to the community of faith that is the church. Let's go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 28. All right, and I'll go ahead and, and, and read this. Starting in verse 18. And when Jesus came and said to them, or, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Right when we read in Matthew chapter 7, they were astonished because he was speaking as if he had authority. Well, now in Matthew 28, after the climax of the resurrection, Jesus has proved his authority. He's proved that he is, he is king over death. That, he, that death itself cannot be um, an ending for him. And that the authorities of the world, who think they are really authority over him, have been trampled and overtook by Jesus himself. So now that we've looked at the book of Matthew and when it was written, who it was written by, and how we should read and interpret it as narrative, let's go ahead and look at the why and the where. So who was Matthew's audience? Well, um, many believe that the primary and the direct audience of the book of Matthew is the church at Antioch in Syria. And if you know your book of Acts, that's where uh, people were first called Christians, where both Gentile and Jew worshiped together. And though it was written to both the Gentiles and the Jews, the foremost audience were the Jews. Matthew wants to convince the Jewish person that Jesus is their Jewish Messiah. And so here's the purpose. Matthew wants to convince the whole world, and Jews in particular, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that he's the long-anticipated king in the line of David, and that he's the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, specifically God's promise to be a blessing to the nations. And so keeping in mind this purpose of Jesus as Messiah and king and fulfiller of God's promises, let's look at some key themes that Matthew wants to show us. Well, Matthew wants to continue the next chapter of God's story. Really, he wants to continue the Old Testament story. So as we mentioned, the broad audience of the book of Matthew is the Jews, not the Gentiles. And while it is for the Gentiles as well, Matthew is emphasizing the life and the work of Jesus as the next step in God's story. The ultimate climax of God's story that started with the Old Testament. Another key theme that Matthew is really trying to point out to us is Jesus is the king descended from David. So can I get one of you to turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. You getting it for me, Greg? Working on it. <laughs> Isaiah 11? Uh-huh, Isaiah chapter 11, Four. Uh, verses 1 through 2. Okay. <clears throat> then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Thanks, Greg. Let's go back to that first part of the verse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. All right, Jesse is the father of King David. And Isaiah is telling us in this prophecy that there's going to be someone who comes from the line of David and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. We'll talk more about that as we get into some of the later chapters of Matthew. Um, but I want us to, to have in our minds this key theme that Matthew wants to show us, that Jesus is this king descended from David. He's the Messiah, yes, but he's also the authority, the king. He is the head of this new kind of kingdom. And also, let's look at Israel. Israel has this long-anticipated presence of God to return to the people of God. 
before the opening of the book of Matthew in our New Testament, there's 400 years of silence from the book of Malachi. God's people are waiting for God to speak and say something. They haven't heard from him in 400 years, and now Jesus, the presence of God himself, shows up in the book of Matthew. So Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the king, and also that he is the presence of God. But not only does Matthew want to continue the Old Testament story and the next chapter of God's story, he also wants to get in our minds that, he's be- that, that Jesus is beginning a new community of faith, the church. So first, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. There are a few promises that God made to Abraham, um, but, but one of them is that one day God's people would be a blessing to the nations in such a way that they would all come and follow Jesus, or that they would all come and follow Yahweh. Next, Gentiles are now included in the church. So I'm going to go ahead and read from Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, if you want to join along. And when Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as your desire, as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. We'll expand on that passage more as we go through Matthew chapter 15, but we see here that even though Matthew's main foremost audience is the Jews, he also has the Gentiles in mind. That in this new community of faith, even the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are recipients of the blessings and the healing of Jesus. As we talked about, embedded in the narrative of Matthew, there's five discourses or teachings of Jesus that are the manual for Christian discipleship. So the teachings of Jesus are central to Gospel of Matthew because Matthew believes that the teachings of Jesus are central to you, to me. Let me say that again. The teachings of Jesus are central to the Gospel of Matthew that we're reading through and going through because Matthew believes that the teachings of Jesus are central to you and to me. And these teachings of Jesus are authoritative. Matthew writes because Jesus is king over everything. Since all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus, the gospel of Matthew draws you to the teaching of Jesus. And when you are drawn into the teaching of Jesus, you're drawn to the face of Jesus, to who he is, to what he's done. So in conclusion, Jesus is king. As we previously mentioned, the main point of Matthew is this. Jesus has established his kingdom and is now expanding this kingdom through his disciples who proclaim his life and teachings. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus has already established his kingdom. 
All right, so I really want to hammer in on this. Jesus has already established his kingdom. Your work, my work, our work at Northbrook Church and everywhere else that we go is not to establish his kingdom or even convince people to become a part of the kingdom, right? Jesus is already king over all the earth. Instead, our work is to participate in an already established kingdom. The Holy Spirit does the convincing. We do the inviting. We are the God, we are the mouthpiece of God. We're not here to establish and, and, and work out the kingdom in such a way that we're making it happen. No, no, no. God is doing his work. He's inviting us to just participate. How is he inviting us to participate? Well, as we mentioned, Jesus is now expanding this kingdom. So though Jesus has already established the kingdom of God, it has not yet seen its full potential. The great commission of Jesus is this next step of God's kingdom. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Just think, a bunch of Gentiles in a room, right? 2,000 years removed from um, the story of Matthew and the story of Jesus. How many disciples making disciples making disciples making disciples had to happen for you to become a disciple of Jesus? 2,000 years from now, if the Lord still tarries, how many disciples that you made, that they made, that they made, that they made, stretch all the way to this ever-expanding kingdom of God? The Lord's doing a much bigger work than us, but he's inviting us into it. And this ever-expanding kingdom of disciples making disciples is God doing something that he promised Abraham, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Next, Jesus' disciples are to proclaim the life of Jesus and his teachings. So let's look at the details of the Great Commission. And this Great Commission to make disciples by first baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded. And that second one, I don't know about you, that second one's a little tough for me, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. I don't know about you, but I can't teach me to observe all that Jesus commanded. Um, a lot of effort, um, sometimes by the Holy Spirit and sometimes by my sinful desire to just do things right, is, is, is put into trying to do all that Jesus commanded. So how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to carry out this great commission? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us the answer. He says this at the end of the book of Matthew. I am with you always to the end of the age. So, so how do we follow and observe the teachings of Jesus and teach them to others and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because while this isn't um, explicitly given us to in the book of Matthew, after the Gospels, in the book of Acts, we see that Jesus sends his spirit. And just as Jesus was with these disciples in the book of Matthew, he is, he is with us through his spirit. And because of that, we're able to observe all that Jesus has commanded. So as we study, study the book of Matthew this semester, and a bunch of different people come and, and teach us about the book of Matthew, and in our prep each week at home and in our small group discussion every week as we get here way too early, let the following question remain with you. Let this question just sit with you as you walk out of here. 
how am I called to lay down my life? How am I called to lay down my life for the sake of following Jesus and calling everyone around me to follow Jesus? Let's pray. Father of all mercies, we approach your throne today because of Jesus. Because of who you have revealed yourself as through these Gospels. As we study the book of Matthew this semester, would our eyes be fixed upon you? Would our hours of work and discussion and listening to teaching be turned into awe? and wonder at the majesty and the power of your son. Lord, would you remind us as, as we go into our jobs, as we go into the other things of, of this week, like taking care of our families and spreading the gospel in every way, would you remind us that Jesus is king, that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him and that Jesus is present with us right now through his spirit. Lord, press us to teach others what you have commanded us. Press us to be a part of participating in your ever-expanding kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.